Nice work, Will. That's short on purpose. I wanted that thing to stand in its naked glory. We'll talk why in a second. So, hey, uh, Quig's supposed to be preaching this morning, but he's not. Do you know why he's not? He has anybody, does anybody know? Has a rumor gotten out? Quig and a handful of others, Bob Williams has been really instrumental, have been working really hard, moving heaven and earth so that Archbishop Benjamin Kwashi can come join us here in the United States for surgery. He has colorectal cancer, which is no joke, and it's a lot better to have that treated in the United States. And so a bunch of folks have worked really hard to uh, make arrangements for him to get that surgery here uh, like on the super cheap. It's been an amazingly generous provision. Bob Williams worked really hard for it. And Ben was supposed to come, I think, like three days ago. Um, and his flight got delayed, and then it got delayed, and then it got delayed, and now he's due to arrive and land, uh, I think this morning at 11.40, so he should be about to touch down, and it just really seemed a pretty good idea for Quig to go and to greet him at the airport and to welcome him in. He'll, he and his wife will be staying with Quig and Annette for the next, I think about month, while he prepares and then recuperates from the surgery, so Quig sends his greetings, would love to be here with us, um, but he is on a very, uh, really holy errand. And we're excited, not only that, um, that Archbishop Kwashi is able to come, but that so many have kind of pulled together to provide for him um, what pr- I, I really think would probably be a terminal diagnosis if he wasn't able to come and, and uh, get treatment here. So we're excited for that. Um, and it gives me the opportunity to be in the scriptures with you. And I'm a sucker for that. I'll do that anytime. So let's do this as I get to the right place in my notes. Boom. Okay. So here's a question. When do you guys think Jesus is coming back? True question, honest answer. Like, what do you think? When is he coming back? At the right time. time. Okay, this is good. Good. Any other takes? Yeah, John. When the Father's ready. Nice. The right time when the Father's ready. Soon? Not soon? Soon? Did we miss it? Does anybody think we already missed it? It's already come and gone, and we somehow, nobody thinks that, but maybe, maybe soon. Soon's a really good answer. We're supposed to think that it's soon. All throughout the church, there's this constant language throughout the New Testament, throughout the church history. Maranatha, which means come soon, Lord Jesus. We want you to come. Um, how about, how do you know? Are there indicators? Do you think, have you guys ever been taught or trained in like, hey, here's, you know, Jesus talks about when the fig tree starts to blossom or something, you know the time is near. Like, are there indicators that seem to you to be like, oh, it must be particularly soon because X, Y, Z? Do you have any of those in your mind? And if so, what, what are they? What's the clue that, that he's coming that you've heard of? Earthquakes. earthquakes, okay. That's good. That's all of that discourse. Matthew 24, right? Earthquakes, famines, you know, these things are all birth, birth pains. Falling away, right? Very good. So 2 Timothy, Paul talks about this. Right? In the last days, people will be lovers of money, lovers of themselves, proud, boastful, disobedient, and all these things. And all this indication that things go really bad before, it gets, before things go really, really well. Right? Good. Anything else? Other indicators that you've been trained in? Jesus is coming soon because nothing else. So when I was, when I was in college, I remember a book came out. It was called Armageddon, Oil, and the Middle East Crisis. And at that time, so I graduated from college in 92. Around that time, I think it was pretty obvious to most people, to a lot of people at least, that Saddam Hussein was the Antichrist. Do you remember this phase? Do you, do you remember this? And it's like Saddam Hussein, like this is bad news. And pretty much all the chaos, all the just distress in the Middle East um, was an indicator that Jesus is coming back really soon. There's another book that was written 
that didn't focus so much on um, Saddam Hussein, not these enemies, but rather on like geopolitical developments in Israel and religious developments within Israel. There was a book that came out, it was about a decade ago or so, called The New Temple and the Second Coming. And their little leaf, you know, whatever you call it, inside of the book, it said this. The evidence is breathtaking. Jewish authorities are preparing to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Quietly, they have recovered lost artifacts from the ancient temple and have recreated sacred worship vessels. The new Sanhedrin, now reconvened in Israel, is training Levite priests to reinstitute animal sacrifices. These remarkable developments have far-reaching prophetic significance. And the whole idea here from that perspective is that it's all about the temple. Once the temple gets rebuilt, it's go time. And Jesus is going to be coming back. To which I would say, awesome. That would be great. Happy to have that happen. Um, But I mentioned these couple of instances to point out that people are often looking for some indicator, some clues, some kind of like, you know, like you're watching a YouTube video, some progress bar that says like, okay, it's close, it's near, and Jesus is about to come back. But in my reading of scripture, most of that's total nonsense, okay? I don't think we get those particular kinds of clues. Rather, I think there is one clear, unmistakable indicator, one sign that tells us that Jesus' return is close. And it's relevant to our series on the kingdom of heaven, which is why I bring it up, okay? Do you know what it is? What is the biblical indicator that the return of Christ is near. That's it. That all the nations will be told the world. We just heard it, right? It's from Will. Matthew 24, not originally, but Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom, right? The gospel of the kingdom is what we're talking about. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world. It's a testament to all nations, and then the end will come. Which is to say that before the end can come, i.e. before Jesus returns, we're going to finish the Great Commission. The great task that we're about, the great task that Alpha is all about, is going to be accomplished. So Matthew, 20, Matthew 28, Jesus gives what we call the Great Commission. So it's, 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 straight, it's a very kitschy little phrase, the Great Commission. All that means is there's a mission, or a co-mission, if you will, and it is it's the big one. It is the direction. It's the prime directive. It is the, it's our functional mandate. It is our marching orders. And it goes like this. Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Okay, go back a few weeks. Jesus became king on the cross. That's what he's saying. I have been given all authority. I took the lowest place. I was given the highest place. I am king. And here's what I want you to do. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, get at it. Go. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because what we're about is drawing people into a union with him, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. For I am King, Lord, Curios. And by the way, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And the age ends when you finish the job. This is the Great Commission. And Jesus says in Matthew 24, once that's done, I'm coming back. And that's when it will be. This thing, this mission, this co-mission uh, to go is that, is that everyone everywhere must and everyone everywhere will hear the gospel. Doesn't mean that everyone's going to believe the gospel, but it does mean that everywhere the gospel goes, some will believe it. 
And you guys, that is not presently our condition. It's not even the condition in Roanoke, right? There are countless people throughout the world that have never heard the gospel, that don't know of his grace, that don't know of his love. We often will talk about there's a particular part of the world where the greatest proportion of the what we call unreached people live. We call it the 1040 window. If you were to look at a map, the 1040 window, is that a familiar phrase? Do you know the phrase 1040 window? Smattering of you? It means, what, what does it mean? What is 1040? What are those numbers referenced to? Yeah, this. What is this, the international symbol for? The latitude. So 10 degrees north latitude up to 40 degrees north latitude in this particular band. And if you looked at a map, you'd see it's basically like Southeast Asia across through India, North Africa, and the Middle East. That band right there, the 1040 window, is where the majority of people that have never heard the gospel live. And, and like in appallingly large numbers, people that have no hope of hearing the gospel because there's nobody anywhere near them that knows Christ that could speak to them of that, okay? That's the 1040 window. But you guys, you don't even need to go to the 1040 window to meet people who don't understand the gospel. We, we have it right here. There are countless people in our neighborhoods where you work, among your friends, who have never genuinely heard the gospel. They may think they have. They may have heard some caricature. Or they may have rejected some caricature. But there are millions upon millions who don't know. They really don't. That no one that they trust has ever taken the time to explain it to them. No one that they trust has ever invited them into a community where the gospel is alive. Nobody they trust has ever really said, hey, you know what? I'm going to church on Sunday. Would you like, I'd love you to come. Would you be willing to visit with me? I'd love you to meet some of my friends. No one they trust has ever said, hey, we're running these alpha classes. They're amazing. Great chance to get your questions answered. Would you like to come? Many that have never been invited to a church service whether it meets Sunday mornings or Sunday nights at 7 p.m. downtown Roanoke. Hint, hint. You guys, Jesus isn't coming back until everybody hears, until we finish the task. And that has weighed upon me ever since I was a college student. Before I was a college student, I don't think I cared about it, but I also didn't care about much at all before I was a college student. But that's when I was at JMU is when I began to come alive to Jesus. And I began to realize so many different things, including this dawning understanding that everybody else also needed what I was just beginning to really discover. And that I could tell them, or at the least I could tell some of them, right? It wasn't dawning on me just that I could tell them, but that I must tell them, that I was, I was obliged to. I began to feel like I was living in a cancer ward and I had the cure for cancer. And that everybody that I saw desperately needed what I had been given and had been given specifically to give them, right? That the gospel came to me on its way to somebody else. And that understanding totally changed my life. And I wonder if that switch has like flipped yet for you. It may have long ago or it may not have. We're all on a different journey. We're all having kind of maybe a different sequence of events. But I do think that every Christian, if we're in him, we need to get to the point where it's like where it dawns on us, where it clicks, not just at a head level, but at a heart level that, oh, my soul, the gospel came to me on the way to somebody else. That I have the privilege and the opportunity to use my time and my money and my talents, all, all, that, all that's been entrusted to me can be used, can be operationalized to the end that people that are presently outside of his grace, that don't know of his grandeur and his goodness, 
could find it out and that you can, God can use you, right? I remember it was my sophomore year at JMU and a guy named Andy Sparks taught me like week after week, we would meet, he would teach me, here's how you can explain the gospel to somebody. Here's the questions you might anticipate. Here's how you might respond. Here's why how you say things is at least as important as what you say, but that what you say is actually really important too. And it began to change my life. I want to show you one of the passages I discovered at that time. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I didn't put it on a slide for you. Um, I just didn't have time to pull that together. But 2 Corinthians 5. Take a look. If you've got it in your Bible, flip there. And I'll read it to you. Well, here, I want you to, there's something really important here that I want you to grab. He says this, we'll start in verse 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Fantastic bedrock reality that we're being made new in Christ. But watch this, verse 18. All this is from God who, and then he's gonna mention two things, two things that happened for Christians. Number one, all this is from God who, number one, reconciled us to himself through Christ. And number two, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So when you became a Christian, you got a two-gift box. There's two things you get. Number one, you're reconciled. You are reconciled to him. That enmity that exists between you and he, that's over. That's done. You're no longer at enmity with him. There's intimacy and relationship and warmth and, and a place for you. And number two, same time, same thing. You get this. They come together. It's a package deal. You're given the ministry of reconciliation. Okay, well, what is that? That's not quite as obvious. My Bible has a colon right there. Do you have a colon right after verse 18? He's, he's reconciled us and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What that colon means that he's not about to repeat himself, although it looks like it. He's about to explain himself. So we get two things. We're reconciled and we get the ministry of reconciliation. But what is the ministry of reconciliation? Well, it's verse 19. That in God... That God was, rather, reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Okay, it sounds like he's repeating himself, but he's not. What he's saying is, here's how it works. When you come to Christ, you get two things. Number one, you're reconciled, and number two, you become a reconciler. Well, what do you mean by reconciler? Well, you go to somebody else and you give them a two-gift box that they can be reconciled, and they become a reconciler. And what does a reconciler do? Well, he goes to somebody else and says, you can be reconciled and become a reconciler. So he's setting up this chain of events. He's not just saying you get this, but necessarily, if you receive the gospel, you become a communicator of the gospel. And when you communicate the gospel, you're telling the next person that they can have Christ and become a communicator of him. And so there's this chain, this unbroken chain that runs through the centuries from Paul, who was reconciled and therefore was given the ministry of reconciliation and he shared the gospel with somebody who understood it and shared it with somebody who understood it, who shared it with somebody until Jason Booker heard the gospel, right? The gospel came to you, not just on the way to somebody else, but through countless others that were faithful in their time to hear it, to receive it, to internalize it, to own it, and then to know intuitively, and this is not meant to end with me. The chain will not stop here, but God will use me to draw somebody else into a relationship with him through his grace. It's a two-gift box, and that totally blew up my life. It changed my career plans. It rearranged how I spent my money. It rearranged how I prioritized my time, and it gave order and focus to what my 70 or 80 years are supposed to be about. 
This is the switch that has to flip in the head of a Christian. Now, he might call you into very, or he has, no doubt, called you into different particularizations of how you spend your time and your money and your time. God's got all kinds of missions, all kinds of specific things, but they're going to converge under this. This is binding on us, and what a privilege that it is. In those years, I learned not just that I could do something to help people learn about Christ, and not even that I must do something, but that it's urgent that I get at it. I remember reading something from a pastor. He's been dead for 100 years, A.T. Pearson. But he said something that stuck in my mind and that I've never been able to get out. Here's what he said. He said, and this thought should never be forgotten that all that human agency can do for this generation of unbelievers must be done by the Christians of today. Our children, however faithful in their time, cannot help the 1 billion, 200 million of the perishing who pass their probation with us going to India and China. They will only tread the graves of those who have perished through our neglect. The generation now living is our stewardship. You guys, someday, someone just might share the gospel with your neighbors, children, or grandchildren. With your coworkers, grandchildren, or great-grandchildren. Our great-great-great-grandchildren might fulfill the Great Commission. And that would be wonderful. But what good will it do the people that are alive right now, but apart from Christ? Those to whom God has entrusted, those to whom that God has entrusted to us to communicate the gospel. Because the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. And the people living in Roanoke right now are on us. Your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends. You're not friends. The people you really don't like that much because we're called even to love our enemies because they are the reason that we're launching CHS downtown. We want people in this city to have a chance to hear the gospel and we think that there are some that are more likely to come here. Let's invite them here. Join us on a Sunday morning. They can look out the glass like the rest of us do and worship and learn and grow and be in a community and be treated with respect and courtesy. All those things, that can happen right here. And there are some for whom this might not might be too intimidating. Maybe there's too many people or it's not a good time or they live downtown. And an evening service, Sunday nights, might be better for them. Wherever they are, whichever time, we don't really care. Bring them to either, bring them to both. But I don't know them. And if I called them, I'd be some rando that would have no influence in their life. But you do know them. You work with them. You live next door to them. You live down the street. Your kids play soccer together. You are the one that has the opportunity to speak to them and invite them. In fact, do this. Just take a minute. Who am I talking about? Who are the people in your world that might respond if you were to reach out to them in kindness and love and trade in all of the capital that you've built up because of the way you've treated them over months or years? Who is it? Who admires you? Who trusts you? And you might say, yeah, sure. If you're going, I'll come. I'll go. I don't want to go alone, but I'll go with you. And they might come if you invite them. 
One of my heroes is a guy named Hudson Taylor. Do you guys know the name Hudson Taylor? Is that like a household name? Hudson Taylor was a missionary from England to China in the 1850s, groundbreaking. Uh, And the first person he ever led to faith when he got to China was a Buddhist man. And uh, Taylor had a conversation with him a few weeks after he had begun a relationship with Christ and had begun to make all these discoveries. Taylor recorded this conversation, and it's just so gripping. Listen to this. He says, a few nights after he began to follow Jesus, he asked how long these glad tidings had been known in England. He was told that we had had the gospel for some hundreds of years. The man looked amazed. What? Is it possible that for hundreds of years you have had the knowledge of these glad tidings in your possession and yet have only now come to preach them to us? My father sought after the truth for more than 20 years and died without finding it. Why did you not come sooner? It's a good question. Don't take it rhetorically. Why not? Why not invite a friend? I know that there are burdens, there are barriers, there's some awkwardness or there's some risk to take, right? But surely the burdens to speak of Christ, to invite a friend, to worship with you, to have a conversation, to buy him lunch, um, surely those burdens are less than the burdens it takes to travel to China in the 1850s to speak of Christ. You guys, you have friends who are hurting and their marriages are a mess. They need a community. They need peace with God. They need forgiveness. They need a rescue. Figure out the barriers. Like, what is it? There's something there. But like, work it out. Solve it. Take a step. Be courageous. Have a friend hold you accountable. Come up with some magic phrases, right? That you might say, hey, you know, I was wondering, could we get together for lunch sometime? And over lunch, in the context of warmth and love and life, just say, you know, one thing we've never really talked too much about is kind of like our spiritual backgrounds. I'd love to hear your, what's your story? Kind of what's the journey that you've been on? What are some of the key, key turning points maybe in your life? And listen, just listen. You don't need to be clever. You don't need to have some brilliant, you know, comeback. Just listen and attend and be respectful. Very often, very, very often, if you ask a person those sorts of questions, you will not only learn about them so you can love them well because you know maybe some of their hurts or some of their, uh, some of their wounds, some of their exciting things in their lives, but they will probably be able, what about you? What's your story? And it creates an opportunity for a dialogue, for, for a mutually respectful exchange of ideas in which you can tell your story. You might even take the time to do this. So the fellows and I, we were just doing this exercise of practicing. If I just had three minutes to tell my story of how I came to Christ, what would be some of the key turning points? What are, the couple, are there any phrases that I could use that would, in an articulate way, make plain something that would be winsome and inviting and might compel people to want to hear more? You could do that work. You could even read as a number of times in the New Testament where Paul will, will share his story. You could use his story as like a, a framework. What did he do? How did he do it? Kind of what was my life before I became a Christian? How did it happen? What's happened since? It's not all Pollyanna. It's not like I went from being like a, you know, drug-addicted prostitute to being like a nun. You know, these things, it's, it's, a, it's a rocky world. But can you tell the story 
of the before, the how, and the after. That might be a great thing you can do. Maybe there's a passage from a Bible that you found meaningful. Maybe there's a, a video that you've seen that's really useful that you could say, would you be willing to watch this? Um, maybe we could watch together. We could talk about it. I'd love to hear what you've heard. Or maybe it's as simple as this. Maybe you say, would you be interested in come with me to church sometime? Because I've got some friends, they can maybe explain some of this stuff, but I'd love, to, I'd love to introduce you to. Maybe you introduce them to other believing friends because the more Christians that a non-Christian knows, the better. But could you just take a step? What's the next thing that you might do to move someone towards having a relationship with Jesus? Figure out the barriers, work through them, and let's tell people. Let's invite them to come worship with us. Let's speak to them with respect and admiration. Let's listen to the journey that they've been on. And we'd love to have them join us here in the morning or Sunday nights at 7 o'clock downtown. Um, We want to build some friendships, move towards people, and through it all, bit by bit, relationship by relationship, fulfill the Great Commission. Because this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then... And only then, the end will come. All right? Lord Jesus, it's for you. It's all for you. Well, we share the gospel not just because people need you, although they do. We need you. I need you. I cannot imagine what it would be like to go through this life without you, without the promise of your love and your grace, to, without being able to look to the future and even to my death with such rock-solid hope and optimism, what's it like? But Lord, we also want to be about this work because you simply deserve to be praised. You deserve the honor and the admiration and the love of countless people who give you no second thought. By your grace, Lord, would you help us to create more worshipers that will see your beauty and delight in it to the glory of your name.